Anyways, here we go. This is the Wine of Life podcast. I am Pastor Wes. This is Pastor. Should I say Pastor? Reverend? Yeah, yeah technically Vicar. Deacon. Yeah. Deacon. This I'll is ready to be father here in a couple weeks. About to be father. Bill Scott <laughs> went from the Resurrection Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Yeah. Anglican Church, and we're going to be talking about Anglicanism this evening. Um, what I want to start with first is he went to a Southern Baptist church with me when we were young, but he is now uh, uh, going to be a priest in the Anglican church. So I want to ask him how he came to that point. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, we grew up together and you're, you're a couple years younger than I am, but I think you were phasing into the youth group as I was phasing out. But um, a long history together. Yeah, I was raised in the Southern Baptist church, went to an independent Baptist college and went left left Rock Hill to go to Chattanooga, go to Tennessee Temple University. Um, and um, so after that, I helped plant a non-denominational church in Chattanooga. And the, the three pastors, the three of us that were planting this church, we wanted to uh, be lifelong learners and, and consistently be reading and pushing each other. And uh, one of the very first books that we read was, uh, was an introduction to church history. And so as I went down that path and, and seeing some of our family history that I had never touched on before at all um it was fascinating um the the monastic movement the 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 development of the liturgy and the 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 ecclesiastical structure was just fascinating to me and so as i started reading all that i was like well let's let's see what's going on with uh, with this church calendar and these seasons of life of walking through that as a christian retelling christ's story and our story um and so i started attending uh an episcopal church uh they did a um did that just stop? No. No, no, okay. we're good. I saw I saw a flash. Anyways, um, <laughs> there was an Episcopal church two blocks from my office that did a noonday Eucharist. And so that's where I started going um, on uh, on the weekdays on my lunch break to just participate in taking communion in, in a completely different format. Um, participated in my first Lent there and Holy Week there. That was great. But um, I, I knew enough of what was going on in the Episcopal church where I was like, nah. Can't get involved <laughs> theologically there. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of watched them implode from the outside. And so um, when God said, okay, you need to go to seminary to finish your education, uh, we moved back here to go to Gordon-Conwell. And Gordon-Conwell is an, an interdenominational school. Um, Charlotte campus, uh, where I attended, um, there's, there's over 30 denominations uh, from, di from 50 different countries represented in that one school. So uh, it, was a, it was a great introduction to interacting with a lot of people from a lot of different very uh, perspectives of the Christian faith. Um, but, uh, but I'd fell in love with liturgical worship and with, uh, and with the, the church calendar. And, and by that point, uh, Pair USA and uh, AMIA, the Anglican Mission of North America, were, uh, were up and running. Uh, and they, for all intents and purposes, they merged together to make the Anglican Church of North America. So by the time I graduated, I was finally able to move into the context of the Anglican Church, and uh, here we are three years later, ordained and planning a church myself. So Stuff happens. <laughs> right. So right. you end up where you are. Yeah. Well, when most people, uh, particularly Baptists, when they discuss um, Anglican, uh, what they little they might know about it, they consider it sort of Catholic light. Mm -hmm. Because when they think about the liturgy and things like that, they think, um, that's not their bag because there's a free form worship. There's a liturgical worship. So the first question I'd like to ask with how people can know what Anglicanism is, what is liturgical worship? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the, 
I think the caricature is kind of like what you're saying is Catholic light, um, you know, and, and we do have a rubric for what we say needs to happen in worship. Um, and so, uh, so there is a structure to that. Um, and we say it's actually kind of um, a retelling of Christ's story and we're getting to participate in that story within that form of worship. Um, but it is, you know, there's definitely times the spirit moves and, and things will go a different direction. And so that's, and it's wonderful and it's rich. Uh, and, but yeah, you can definitely expect for the most part, every Sunday, you know exactly what's coming next. Um, I say that depending on the, the season that we're in, as far as the Christian calendar goes, some yeah. things get changed um, as we move into Advent or, or Holy Week or things of that nature. Uh, and so, uh, but yeah, for the most part, you know what's coming. So we, we start off with the procession. Uh, somebody's carrying the cross, which is right up there on the stage. Uh, then the clergy are falling behind. We've got the gospel held high, um, representing Christ coming into our presence. Uh, and then we start off with an opening acclamation together, usually something like, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the church responds. I think that's the other part that people feel a little out of place if they've never participated in liturgical worship is the the congregation participates in more than just a song mm. um so uh so like you know we'll recite a prayer together we usually call colics uh and so uh, so that that feels kind of odd for people yeah. um or like when we have prayer time after the sermon uh we'll we'll say very specific written prayers and then they're open to extemporaneous prayers to where people will pray specific needs and then and then the reader who's re reading these prayers will say, Lord, in your mercy, and they collectively hear our prayer. And so it can, feel, it can feel a little different from time to time for people who don't experience it on a regular basis. And then we, we always confess sins together um, uh, as, a, as a company. Um, we get up and we have communion every Sunday. So we, we, we get to use the, the bread and the wine and partake in that. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very straightforward. You know, you, yeah. after enough time in it, you know what's coming. I, I think the... The big question for uh, people who would be, I guess, Baptists or people who are not in the liturgical form of worship is mm -hmm. where do you get it scripturally? I, for me, uh, the way that I've read it is most of the uh, way that liturgical worship progressed throughout church history was trying to copy what was seen in Revelation 4 through 8, mm -hmm. the things that were happening in heaven with the incense and the robes and the, um, the back and forth, like you said, the, yeah. with the congregations, uh, congregation being involved. But where scripturally do you find, um, because the Anglican church holds to the five solas, right? More or less, in a sense. It, de it depends. It's a, that's a very nuanced, I mean, it, it depends, yeah, it I, depends I know on who you're talking. Well, so like within Anglicanism, um, you've got guys who I will say are probably a sneeze away from being Roman Catholic. And you've got yeah. guys who are, you know, in, unless you go in and you actually experience liturgical worship, you really wouldn't know they're Anglican anyway. So like, True. you know, if you met me on the street, especially in what I'm on today, <laughs> you're not going to know that I'm getting ready to be an Anglican priest. I mean, I've got a shirt that says fear the beard on it. Very true. Um, and so, uh, so it just depends on where they land on those things. But, you know, I mean, but a lot of the guys, they take a middle way, you know, you, you'll see that in Anglicanism, Anglican writings, they call it the via media, the yeah. middle way. So it's like we, we, we held, we held the, the good, the richness of, of the traditions that were passed down from long ago within Christianity that we would say was corrupted and tainted by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so we corrected the doctrines, we corrected the theology, but we kept the richness of the traditions. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so I mean, you know, like the, the, the solas, yeah, I mean, 
I don't, I don't mean in the specifics of, say, the right. way Calvin or, or Luther would s- spell out the solas. Yeah. I just mean with regards to Scripture alone, you, you, there, is, there are four essentials. I did write these down. You have, on your website, you have the Nicene Creed, the Word of God, the two sacraments, and the Episcopate are your four essentials. Mm-hmm. So with regards to the Word of God, where do you find uh, liturgical worship being best expressed in the Word of God? Oh, you know, I think you can pick up on it pretty easy um, looking in, in the, the book of Acts and then moving into the epistles that, that we were starting to see some form of structure, um, both within worship and within um, how Paul particularly was lining up, um, training others to be up under him. And so, so you start to see those glimpses of things. And then outside of that, you know, to be perfectly honest, you just have to allow for the spirit to move to set things up. And, and that's kind of a continuation in the Anglican church that you see from the Roman Catholic and from the Eastern um, all the way back to the beginning to that, that, ex, that setup of the Episcopal, uh, the Episcopate. So, you know, you, you know, that's from the Greek term Episkopos, which yeah. is overseer, um, you know, and that, that was one of those things to where um, we, we say we believe in apostolic succession, you know, people, that can be a loaded term depending on who you're talking. I was going to ask you about that one too, with regards to the way the, Romans view the Anglican Episcopate <laughs> is uh, there's a, a bit of a controversy there and right, uh, I was right. wondering about that do you do you genuinely believe that what they're saying about their succession is correct versus what you're saying about your succession they they don't consider you guys right part of the succession so how right. does that work well I mean you know, logically I don't see how they can sit there and say that we weren't because Cranmer was was ordained in the Roman Catholic in the Roman Church. Church yeah. And so anybody he ordained and, and well anybody who was ordained in the Roman Catholic Church before the English Reformation happened was ordained in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And so anybody ordained under Cranmer after him, I mean there's there's a clear succession there. So yeah. it's like, you know, it does I mean it doesn't make sense logically they're gonna say now I, I get how they say spiritually it was broken, yada yada, all those things. Um but um you know it's not necessarily the fact that you have a, a tangible line all the way back to the apostles. It's the fact that what you're saying is that you're called to this position and that there is a passing of authority onto you from somebody who's been passed on to them. To and them. Then. So, so, and so, I mean, it's like, I mean, if you're going to try to trace, it's not about tracing the line. It's about the, the fact that, you know, God's called you to this position and we're recognizing that and somebody who's been in that position is bestowing that power and authority to you. And it's yeah. not, yeah. So it's not like a man-made thing as much as it's a recognition that God is moving in your heart and doing something and, and he's bestowing these gifts on you. We're just being the representative of that, so to speak. So we're yeah. physically just stepping in and saying, okay, this is what Christ or the apostles would do if they were here. Yeah. So, so the laying on of hands is a necessity within the ordination then. Because you know that that's so. become some issue now about mm-hmm. is is laying on of hands something historically performed, um, but that's very interesting. I think that kind of should more or less um, uh, clear up some of the ideas of how you guys are different from the Roman Church with regards to succession. But um, are you against freeform worship? I did, I want to ask this because I know uh, some people, particularly in the Roman Church, um, are actually. They have things that they do, but then they say that you have to do them. And I was wondering, do you ever miss that? You know, just somebody going into a hymn, maybe getting the guitar out and just going for right. it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's the, the, the fun part is there, there are times where that will happen. Um, okay. Not necessarily 
on a regular basis within a, a Sunday morning. But, you know, like you'll hear some Anglicans talking about the three streams. So, you know, there's scripture, there's sacrament and there's spirit led. Mm. Uh, and so there there's there's a lot of Anglicans that, you know, it's it can be more spirit led than than a rubric led. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's very healthy. Like, you know, you'll the most the most um, clear part of our worship that you'll see that that happens to be more spirit led is our prayer time. Um, and even during um, during communion. So when we take communion, we've got a we've got a, a number of people who are trained in intercessory and healing prayer. And so they'll be over to the side receiving people who want to be prayed over, anointed with oil. Um, laying on of hands and, and that nature and so that can that can be a little interesting from time to time too yeah um, so I mean yeah it's like you know it's one of those things it's like okay we you know worship um, worship can look many a different way and for us it, it does have a pattern that it should follow um, yeah if it doesn't follow it we're, we're not going to get slapped on the hand by God or anybody else for that matter so, okay yeah because you know I think some people would wonder that like do you is there a judgment there do you think that there's a lesser than with regards to the various um, denominations that aren't involved in liturgical worship. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a judgment out of the Reformation against uh, Anabaptists and mm-hmm. the Waldensians and people like that. And obviously um, King James and the Church of England and the persecution that happened with people like John Hellswith and, and people like that. Yeah. So I was wondering what the views were now. Um, no. But one of the main aspects of Anglicanism that I've read is the 39 articles mm-hmm. of religion. Yeah. So what, you don't, don't have to go through the whole thing, <clears throat> but I've read them. They seem to be very based in reform type theology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What, what are the 39 articles? Are they things that you have to adhere to, to be a, mem- to be a sort of confessing Anglican? Mm-hmm. Or are there, are there points of differentiation that you can have? What, yeah. So um, the uh, during the English Reformation, <clears throat> you know, Cranmer was writing uh, these documents to try to to solidify what was going on in England, and um, you know, and it, it happened a lot. You know, so you had the the, Hel- the Helvetic Confession and the Westminster Catechism and all these things that were coming yeah. out during that time, and that was Cranmer's way of trying to solidify what he was saying is taking that that via media approach, um, and so. I tend to tell people there are guardrails for Anglicanism. So they're, they're like, you know, I mean, those are the things that it's like, okay, within what we see within Scripture, how we interpret Scripture, um, you know, that's kind of where our, our boundaries are. So we, we operate within those. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, me as clergy, they, they actually ask if I, if I um, submit to them. Um, I don't use the word authoritative. I don't like the word authoritative for anything else but scripture. Yeah. Um, but they're rooted in scripture. You can, uh, you can obviously tell that Cranmer spent a lot of time in scripture um, based off of those writings. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, some of the other guys who've expounded on the 39 articles, probably J.I. Packer is probably the most well-known Anglican that we have uh, in the modern era. Yeah. Um, and so just to see how he wrote about them um, is all well and good. But yeah, um, you've got a lot of people who interpret a lot of different things, a lot of different ways in the 39 articles. Right. And so, so it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm telling, when I tell you there's a wide birth, there's a wide birth in Anglicanism. Okay. So. Well, I, I just find them interesting and, and they, they are very um, rooted in, re, in reformed theology, mm-hmm. but they were written in like 1571, I think. Yeah. And so you, there have been like updates and then there's people like Packer and there's other people who've come up with, with different types of things within them. And I was wondering mm-hmm. how strict it is 
with regards to that. Like, you know, you're going to be a priest. Are you going to have to say, I, will, I adhere to the oh, strictest yeah. or the most Oh, no, the I mean, it's, it's just one of those generic, you know, do you, do you believe? Yeah. Like, like, so within the ordination service, do you believe the, the canon of the scripture and da, 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 and will you hear the 39 articles? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it, they don't say, okay, well, are you going to adhere to this guy's interpretation? 30 oh, okay. Articles, you know? All right. So. That, but that can happen in some denominations. They do. Right. There, there are certain things like right. that. So yeah, I didn't know like if Anglicans. If you don't take it this way, then. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. Well, then the, the third part, and I think this probably has a little bit to do with the um, liturgical worship as well, is what is the Book of Common Prayer? This is something that Baptists also don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, what is supposed to be that? Yeah, so uh, again, yeah, Thomas Cranmer um, was trying to find a way. Uh, and, you know, you're thinking about when this thing was written. The first copy of the Book of Common Prayer was written in the 1540s. Uh, there was another edition that came out in 1552, another mm-hmm. 1553. The 1662 is kind of like the gold standard. Anybody who's like a high church, high church Anglican, they love the 1662. IVP actually just came out with one where they kind of tweaked some of the language just slightly, but it's it's green instead of our common red, and, you know, it's, it's dense. I'll tell you, it's dense. <laughs> but anyways, what Cranmer was trying to do was give a resource to the people that was going to consistently... Um, draw them back to scripture uh, and particularly how to grow as a Christian. So what the book of common prayer has besides the rubric for what we do in a standard worship service is there's the, the other, the other services that you would typically take part in as a Christian. So a marriage ceremony, a funeral, a baptism, um, those things are in there. The ordination services for clergy, those are in there. Um, but then uh, at the front, it actually takes up a decent amount of it is morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, and Compline. So, and those are specifically in there to give people a framework on, okay, as I'm communicating with God, as I'm diving into being a, a Christian, here's a, here's a format of how I can do that. I, ca- I call it a, a, a you know, a, a piece of, a, t- a tool that you put in your toolbox. So it's devotional. Devotional yeah. material, and, you know, typically there's, there's a lectionary in the back, so it gives you um, during the day of the year, which scripture to read. Uh, and so uh, I can't speak much for some of the older versions. Uh, the ACNA came out with one in 2019, and that's the one that we use in our worship. And so mm-hmm. um, within that lectionary, um, you have the option of reading through all the Psalms, either in a 30-day or a 60-day cycle uh, during those prayer times. And then during worship service, if you, act, if you were to make it a goal to attend every service, for three years, you're going to hear almost all of the scripture read aloud in person in, in the sanctuary. And that's just the way that we, we really approach the fact is that that's, that's besides taking communion and participating in baptism, scripture is the highest part of how you actually enter into God's presence and participate yeah. in relationship. So you hear it. So like every, every service that we're here, we have an Old Testament reading, we have a New Testament reading that's not the gospel, and then we actually have a gospel reading. So you hear three parts of scripture every week. Um, some Anglican churches will incorporate a psalm in that as well. We, we actually did this past week because I was preaching from Psalm 16. Uh, and so we incorporated the psalm reading in that as well, but that's not unheard of either. But yeah, it's just a, it's a well-rounded resource that, that gives a person the, um, a, a tool to be able to grow in faith literally from cradle to grave. Yeah. Well, I think devotional works are, we, we need more devotional works. Um, 
that are more scripturally informed than we do yeah. these days rather than sort of self-help type um, deals, <laughs> right, which, right. Are, which are rampant in our evangelical world. But what I uh, also would like to know, and, and this would be a point, again, that, that Baptists would like to know about is what or how do you view the, the sacraments? Now, I know that you don't hold to the um, Roman Catholic... Um, I knew that happened. Uh, the Roman Catholic... Um, oh, the transubstantiation? No, no, no. I mean, the oh. various... Um, they have like seven sacraments. They, and they do. Uh, or, or maybe the Eastern Church has seven and they have more. But um, I know that you don't hold to those. But how do you view the um, two sacraments? Because in... Um, even in Reformed theology, there's a difference. Um, uh, Luther holds to this sort of hypostatic type union, mm-hmm. and then it matters consecration, reception. Right. There's a difference between melaton and, and people like that. Yep. But Calvin was symbolist and mm-hmm. main, mainly Baptist, although I have a slight disagreement with some of this. They believe it's sim- purely symbolism. Purely symbolism, yeah. How do you view Do you view the actual presence within the elements themselves, or how, mm-hmm. how do you guys? Yeah, so um, so <laughs> uh, that that is a that is a tricky one, and, and and to be honest, I actually like the way that that the Eastern Church kind of defines the fact that you know to a degree this stuff is a mystery. It's a mystery, yeah. Um, and and I think it's intended to be, to be honest. And so um, uh, so yeah, so you'll. As you, you read and research and hear Anglicans talk, you'll hear the term real presence come up a lot, and, and that's the approach that we take to the table. As we say, you know, that, that is Christ's table. Um, he's, he's present here in the worship when we worship on Sundays. Yeah. He's present at the table, and he is actually present in the elements. Now, you know, like we're not going to sit there and say that if you put the elements under a microscope that they, they've turned yeah. into blood cells yeah. and all that stuff. Um, but that, you know, when he's, when he's teaching the disciples, he's like, you know, unless you take my, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, you're not going to have life. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, dude, that's a hard teaching. What are you talking about there? He, he didn't back down. Uh, and then, you know, he teaches in metaphor and parable and all these things, but you don't get the sense of that at the, at the last supper. You know, this is my body, this is my blood. And so pulling those two together, um, you know, we, we say he's there. You know, that, that, is, that is his body, that is his blood, that is the feast that physically sustains us from week to week uh, while we're going out into the community, taking the light into the darkness. Um, but we don't try to figure out, you know, hypostatic union, yeah, yeah. transubstantiation, yeah, transubstantiation. It's just like, it is what it is. Yeah, but th- those are sort of Western things that we do. We, we try to figure things out. Exactly. And so exactly. the Western church has tried to figure out what the, how to explain this stuff. Yeah. But... How do you view baptism? Is it regeneration? Is it symbolic, or is it a, a work of God with regards to the um, uh, cleansing of sin? How, how, do you, how do you view that? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily regeneration, um, but um, but it, you know, like we typically a lot of a lot of uh, Anglicans or sacramentalists would say that you know a sacrament is an, an outward visible sign of an inward physical you know, inward spiritual truth. Uh, and so we do say that there is something happening at baptism. Um, it's not necessarily regenerative because if you read, uh, particularly in the 2019, if you read uh, the, the liturgy for the baptism, it's very evident that what we're actually saying is baptism is entering into the body of Christ. That that's allowing a person to be able to participate as if a believer. But when you turn the page and you keep reading, 
it's very clear that it says, you know, especially in the baptism part of a child, if it's a child, that, you know, this person is going to have to be raised in the church so that one day they can claim this faith to be their own. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, we wouldn't say that it's, it's saving anybody from their sins. Um, it's an introduction into the family in hopes that they're actually going to claim that faith for themselves and they're going to come to faith later in life as they begin to grow. Um, and so, so, yeah, it's a, it's a hope of looking forward to future events. So would you see it in light of, if we took an Old Testament example, would you see it in terms of circumcision? Well, of course, yeah. So that's how it would be viewed. Yeah. So, and then that would be the second bit because this is also something that would be opposite, not opposite, but different from the Baptist point of view of the Credo Baptist mm -hmm. or the Baptist believers uh, or believing baptism. Um, in what sense uh, are, um, or what work is occurring when, say, infants are baptized? Because this is a confusing part for many um, Baptists. Right. And what, you know, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I would say that as far as like the difference between pedo and, and credo baptism um, for us, um, you know, at least for me personally, I, I would hope that we're seeing just as many new converts getting baptized as adults as we do kids that are being raised in the faith. Um, but, you know, so going back to what's going on in the life of a, of a child at baptism is um, I, what I would say is that what you're seeing is you're, you're seeing an outward expression of what you're hoping is going to be an inward reality when they come to faith. So, you know, they, so like, like you talk about, it's, it, Paul links baptism to circumcision from the Old Testament. So what was old, what was the circumcision in the Old Testament? Very painful. Thankfully, we don't have to do anything like that these days, um, <laughs> at least to be entered into the kingdom um, or entered into the, to the body. But it was a recognition that that person is going to be a recipient of a, of, of a future identity of what they're, you know, they're identifying themselves as a, as a particular uh, group. And so, um, so that's what we're, that's what we're saying baptism is in hopes that the spiritual fulfillment, the internal fulfillment of that will come down the line. If that okay. makes sense. Yeah. I, yeah. From a, from a circumcision point of view, that would make sense. I think there would still, there would be an argument there. <laughs> I think there would right. still be arguments there from a, a biblical standpoint and from just the way that that's been taught uh, in general. Um, but the other uh, question that I, I would like to ask is, with regards to someone like Calvin, now you made the, the, the thing, you brought up that story about your mom about, and it yeah. came about John Calvin. Yeah. And, but there does seem within the 39 articles to be a strong, um, not five points, but a sort of reformed Calvinistic um, idea that I guess you would say uh, kind of permeated Cranmer's thought. Um, do you see um, issues with that, or is that something that's just generally accepted? Like, do you have issues with, because there's a big Reformed Baptist movement now. I don't know if you heard about there that. There is. There's, yeah. there's, a, there's a Reformed Baptist church here in town that just planted. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of strange to me, but um, it is happening. And do you see that, do you see sort of like-mindedness? I don't see them in any ways being historically Reformed. Yeah. They're doing something wholly different. Yeah. Um, but no, that's neither here nor there. But um, and there was the new Calvinist movement that happened about a decade ago that was also a little bit strange. It's kind of imploded. Um, do you see yourself as connected to Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists? 
is there a connection or do you feel like you are in a totally different type of tradition? No, um, well, you know, I mean, there, there is a little bit of a connection. So um, a lot of people will, will write about Cranmer's evolution within his theolo theological thinking. And when, the, when he wrote the 39 articles, he was on his Calvin kick. Um, but as he was interacting with, um, with Henry VIII and then um, with, with Henry's son after he passed, he kind of goes back and forth with that. So he, he started off like almost legitimately middle of the road, even though you could see the nods to Catholicism, you could see the nods to Reformation. The 39 Articles kind of took a dive more towards Reformed, but then after that he kind of shifted back a little bit. So it, it would have been interesting to see if he would have wrote the 39 Articles later in life or if he would have chose to amend them in some way, if that would have made a difference. But like, you know, Presbyterians, um, uh, there's a loose connection to the Anglican Church anyway, because most Presbyterian denominations stemmed out of Scotland and, and all that with yeah. the English Reformation. And so there's, historically, there's there's a little bit of a, a similarity there. Um, but truly, like, like, completely Reformed, I mean, again, it's gonna depend on who you talk to within Anglicanism. Me personally, um, I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's okay. I, I. My love and understanding and and f seeing the the complete church history opened up the early church. So the first, I would say, seven or eight centuries of the church is really what moved me into Anglicanism because it really stemmed from the fact that the 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 liturgy that you see presented in those writings and um, just the the movements of through the seasons of life. Are there, and so this yeah. was for me. This was probably the clearest manifestation on how I could feel like I was connected to that part of our church history, um, without doing something um, as radical within our own understanding of Christianity as as the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, most people who listen to my um, my podcast knows my strong affinity for the Eastern church, particularly the monastic mm -hmm. uh, movement. I, that was another thing I was going to bring up. I mentioned to you Maximus earlier, but who is, he wrote the ascetic life, mm -hmm. which the ascetic life is not just for the monks and the right. anchorites and groups that yep. were there, but they, it was for everybody. Yep. Um, and he, it wasn't as sort of high-minded as Evagrius or somebody like that. Right. Um, yeah. It didn't go off into sort of Neoplatonic madness, but what is your um, what is your uh, main uh, sort of um, person or monastic writer that influenced you the most? There's is there anybody um, that, that? Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I've I've really appreciated Cyril of Alexandria as far as one of the uh, church fathers that I read a lot. Um, the monastics, I mean, Anthony the Great um, was phenomenal. I mean, he was they they, they kind of. They kind of sit there and say that he was the first monastic, and I mean whether that's true or not. I mean, it's neither here nor there. Um, but you know, he just had a really interesting life, and so reading some of his writings, which I mean, some I of the monastic writings can all be like, they're a bit wild. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> but you know, like um, Athanasius wrote a biography for Anthony that was very influential for Augustine coming to faith. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, and the fact that you know a lot of people have this 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 caricature of monasticism at least early on of like you know they they went out into the de into the desert but they went way out into the desert and that's not true I mean, <laughs> they they went out on the outskirts of town they were far enough away to feel like they were disconnected um but they they waded back in to the cities to participate from time to time so i think the the most interesting story that i love about anthony is when there was a wave of persecution that was going on 
um, he would he would go back in town and he would stand on the stage beside the martyr and the executioner, you know, standing beside his brother or sister in arms while they're getting ready to be persecuted and martyred for their faith. Yeah. And the executioner wouldn't touch them. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about it. It's yeah. like you know, even the guy who who wouldn't pro- proclaim to be a Christian, here's this guy. He knows he's like okay. He's off limits. Yeah, there were. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, lo- I love Cyril um, uh, a lot. I've, I've I've read a lot of his stuff, and and um, uh, but yeah, Anthony Anthony's pretty cool. Um, the Saint Saint Francis is way late to the game, but I think um, I think he's kind of doing what within Catholicism, what Maximus was doing with the ascetic life, is he was trying to actually make those monastic seasons, those understandings of how to dedicate your whole life to Christ but in a Catholic context and so um, the theology was going to be off a little bit there but the <laughs> the formation was was well yeah intended. yeah Francis is a is a very interesting okay so for me uh, St. John of the Cross was one of the first monastics I ever read mm-hmm. and um, uh, again bizarre circumstances and being you know imprisoned and by you know it's very strange he lived with nuns and and women and stuff like that it was it was it, a lot of those things are odd, like when you hear about them and you read about them, you think, how could this happen? But there's a, there's a real, I don't know if it's, it's not a disgust. It's a misunderstanding maybe of the Western world with regard, especially after the Reformation. Mm-hmm. It seems like monasticism uh, seemingly went away or is looked down upon or is right. seen as some other thing, yeah. um, as some Eastern thing or some, even within Catholicism here, it's not really done why do you think that is? Why did monasticism go? Do Do you think the reform, the Reformation, lent into, uh, you know, disregarding monasticism or? Yeah, I, I th- unfortunately, I, I yeah, I would say that that's one of the parts of our church history, our our understanding of of our family history, where it says, you know, the you know the old adage, the baby got thrown out with the bath the bathwater, and. Monasticism was probably like the soap that was sitting in the bathwater with the baby that got yeah. tossed out too, um, and so so yeah, it was one of those things uh, for a lot of them because you know a lot of those guys they they went complete opposite uh, of what you would see in a Catholic church. So there's no pictures; it was bare walls, and you know even you know the that's going to bring was, up my next question. But yeah, keep going. It was <laughs> was um, uh, you know it was, it was just it was a knee jerk reaction, and I think monasticism was part of that. Um, which I mean, it was they were complicit in in the the aspects of roman catholicism that was bad i mean they they participated in that oh yeah. knowingly or willingly or unwillingly i mean you could probably spend your whole career if you moved into academia writing on stuff like that mm. um but i mean they had a role in it so i think you know as the reformation just kind of grew and and also yeah that of, yeah, our our social situation has changed yeah. considerably but yeah. but it does seem strange to me because you know um, Luther was a monk, mm-hmm. you know uh, it just seems and, and you know he came to Christ while being a monk. He right. studied <laughs> his studies were done while being a monk, so it would just seem it just seems odd um, that monasticism was was thrown out. Yeah. But another part that was thrown out, and um, I want to ask you about this because Lutherans have a different idea about this about what iconography is, mm. and um, I mean we there are images. Images of Christ or the resurrection. Um, I use pictures of the icons for to set up the things when I do certain videos on right. certain things, yeah, yeah. because they, you know, they're pictures of things that happen, and we we see that in through throughout churches. Yeah. Uh, but what do you think? Do you think that 
we have the right understanding of what iconography should be, or do you think we've gone too far again? Because I, w- I would disagree with the way, even the way the Eastern Church uses icons, right? You yeah. know, windows into heaven and praying yeah. to them, and uh, and particularly the way that Mary is used in uh, in the Roman Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you think that we use them in an appropriate way now? And I'm talking about just a general, not just gen- yeah, in a general Western sense. Um, I, I think. I think we're just now starting to understand the, the goodness and richness that can be coming out of just using icons just for the aesthetic beauty. Um, like, you know, you, you're talking about the Eastern Church, um, the, the veneration, the praying, all those different things. I mean, I, I think that um, has probably swung a little too far, which I mean, I've, I've got some really dear friends who, who love the Orthodox Church and have moved into the Orthodox Church. Um, and, you know, they're always like, well, it's the pure church. And I'm like, you have not read enough theology <laughs> to understand what's going on because they've changed just as much as the Roman Catholic Church has changed. They have changed. In yeah. their own way. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I just, I love looking at pictures of, of Orthodox cathedrals online because when you walk in and you look up, I mean, it's... It's unbelievable. It's yeah. beautiful. And I, I think, I think um, the church in the West is finally catching up to the fact that, um, you know, we can it can it can enhance our worship and it, it can there's a beauty there because you know not that we're worshiping the pictures but it's allowing us to worship better the god who is you know being exalted through those pictures yeah uh, so yeah. yeah well and the the ideas uh, in the temple the the cherubs and the things that were built through you know all, the, all of the pictures that they had mm-hmm. the lions and things like that but yeah. um another question i think that people would like to know is what is the Anglican view of Mary? Um, because when people say Catholic light, there, there, there is an automatic assumption. Right. There is a sort of um, veneration, or not, I wouldn't say veneration would be bad in and of itself, but a sort of worship, worshipful of Mary. Some people even say Lutherans pray to Mary, Lutherans don't pray to Mary. No. But um, how do Anglicans view Mary? Yeah. Because that's... That's yeah. like a big deal. Right. <laughs> oh, it's a very big deal. Yeah. yeah. I joke about the fact that when, you know, we talk about planting an Anglican church in Rock Hill and, you know, being raised in Rock Hill, um, I, I used to tell people talking about the, the Catholic light thing. It's like, you know, the, 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 the hard thing about going about being an Anglican in Rock Hill at least 20 years ago, if we'd have done this then, if, if it looked Catholic, if it smelled Catholic, if it sounded Catholic, you were Catholic and Catholics are going to hell for all intents and purposes. Yeah, that's anyway, that's um, yeah. uh, so, um, so yeah, I understand that. But you know, no, Mary, Mary, we when when we recite things, we refer to her as the Virgin Mary because when when she became pregnant with Christ, she was a virgin, and so we we put that title in front of her because we're talking about in whom her womb was growing. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we don't pray to her. Um, we would say that you know she's among the saints because of her role, um, but um, but she you knows she was not immaculately consumed, she was not ascended into heaven. You know she she probably had a whole gaggle of kids after Christ. You know, and so uh, so yeah, you know I mean it's it, she's she's a key player in the story, but a <laughs> key player yes, um, she's a key player. But she's not, no, her, her role is, is not any different than any of the apostles in the fact that they were key players in the story. But yeah. it was Christ upon, it was upon Christ on which is our, our salvation is founded. So, 
because that has been um, a major deal since the, uh, the Reformation. Somehow, and I, I've still not fully figured this out, how she came to be the sort of mediatrix, you know, how she came to be this sort of deified being within the story of redemption. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a unique miracle, but um, how it's come to be that is strange to me. And it would be something that I would think would be easy to reform. Yeah. If you were trying to reform the Roman church yeah. and you tried to change that, you could show significantly in Scripture and in the church fathers that this is not something that was done, that, that you know, simply they weren't prayed to. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, part of it is, is you know, at, at some point within our family history, she was given the title Theotokos, um, and which means mother of God. Yeah, mother of God. But they were doing that because they were trying to defend the divinity of Christ, not assume that she was, she was like divine somehow, herself. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think what happened is in trying to defend that title, um, it kind of just waded into what it did and, and turned into what it did. But, and I would also say that, you know, that is one of the detriments of, of, um, of the great schism uh, between the Roman Catholic Church and, and the East is that what you see happening in the Roman Catholic Church was mainly because they isolated themselves from the rest of the bishops. So we go back to the Episcopate. Um, if you're studying church history and you look at things, the early church had no comprehension of this idea that the bishop in Rome was the pope who oversaw the whole church. All the bishops would talk together, would would converse via letter, you know, very long periods of time, unfortunately, because of travel, um, and, you know, interact with how we handle these things, how we're moving together as, as being the shepherd of the shepherds of the shepherds to make sure that Christ's church has grown and, and his, yeah. his mission is fulfilled. And so, um, so I think that is one of the positives of the Eastern church is the fact that even though they kind of isolated themselves within geographical boundaries and there is some level of communication still, they haven't had another ecumenical council since the last one before the Great Schism, but, you know, they still continue to converse and have conversation, and that's, you don't see that going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And they, they once they said, okay, well, the Pope is it, and infallible, and all this stuff, and we know the rest. Yeah. So. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because I think it, like you said, it's clear that there wasn't a general... Um, sort of ascendancy of the Bishop of Rome in the Church Fathers. We don't really see that. If you read somebody like Cyprian, he regularly confronts the, the Bishop of Rome mm -hmm. over the issues that are going on in his time. And I've done a video on Cyprian. Mm -hmm. And um, th there, and that, that's occurred, but what about the idea of people being ordained outside of the Episcopate? Because when we read someone like Pseudo-Hippolytus, in his apostolic teaching, he says that there were people who were called by the Spirit that were, had not had hands laid upon them. Mm -hmm. How does the Anglican Church view that? Or how do you personally view that? Um, because that's become a big issue. I don't know if you've seen the podcast on the um, Mars Hill debacle that occurred. You know, <laughs> the, the new podcast what's that just it, came yeah, out, yeah, the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Of Mars Hill. Yeah. And one of the issues that people are many... Um, pastors who are weighing in are saying he was not part of a church he just said hey i'm a pastor and he started his own church yeah and there's a serious danger in that right but at the same time 
there can be a danger in an institution always overruling right. over people. So how do you find balance there? How do, how do Anglicans do that? Is everything done through the Episcopate or mm-hmm. can, if you wanted to start your own church or enlarge the church you have, it's, mm-hmm. it's very large, you want it to split off into two. Would you be allowed to do that independently or how does that work? So um, I'm not going to be one to step in and say how the spirit can and cannot work personally. And so, um, you know, there have been throughout our, our family history, there have been loads of ways that the spirit has worked that's, that's seen as outside of the norm. And, and that's all well and good. Um, you know, for me personally, I mean, I, I like the fact that we see, we see very early on that there was a structure and that for the most part, we can actually operate within that structure and the church still grow and thrive and work within um, the culture that we're in. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so like your, your example of, of a church growing big and wanting to, to plant uh, a new one either in the same town or, you know, on, like if we got big enough to where we're going to plant one at Fort Mill, for example, we can, we can go with that example. Um, um, you know, while we do have autonomy within our church to, to hire the clergy that we, who we want to hire, um, they still have to be approved by our, our diocese. Uh, and that would be the same thing as how we'd go forward um, with, uh, with planning a new church. I mean, we would say, okay, look, we've got enough families who want to start a church in the next town over. Um, we've got a, a guy, a, a priest and or a bishop who can go with. Um, and so we would, we would follow the rubric that we've been extended because it's, you know, it, it's one where we say, okay, we're submitting to the authority that, that we say that God has placed on our bishops, on our archbishop and, um, and the province. And so, uh, so we'll happily abide by those rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're having this struggle now in the SBC mm-hmm. with um, uh, the Will McRaney case. I don't know if you heard about that. It went to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And, um, you know, the SBC says to the Supreme Court that they actually have um, full authority over all of the various groups within the SBC. Well, that's news to SBC churches. Because <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, that's, that, that's yeah, never so, been the case. <laughs> no, that's never been the case. So there is this, this sort of, there's a fight, there, uh, there's loads of problems within the SBC, but we're having this problem now about who has authority to do what within mm-hmm. which, which church, who gets to say who's preaching and who's not. Yeah. And um, Baptists don't really acknowledge an Episcopate. There is no bishop. There's no everything is it, it, there's a sort of a loose association but we don't right. have you know, you know how it is mm-hmm. yeah. um so then that's a, a pretty big difference with regards to the way the anglican church is set up and and yeah. many other church, lutherans as well yeah. um but I, the maybe it's we're getting a little bit long here but uh what are the uh <laughs> well if you like thing, it you if know? you like it that'd be fine um but w- w- how do you view yourselves in light of lutheranism because lutheranism with regards to the way the reform the reformation came out there are you could view it as two strains mm-hmm. one strain is the liturgical strain one is the freeform worship where you have um the methodists came out of that the baptists came out of that um, everybody who separated themselves from the Roman Church in the well, West. Man, Wesley was a good Anglican. Come on, dude, you know this. He was an Anglican, but <laughs> but, but you would he, acknowledge he got a good dose of free will. He I got it, yeah, you know? it, he got <laughs> Americanized, and that's what happened. I mean, that's right, what happens when right. you come over here. Things change. You're a revolutionary all of a sudden. But the the point is, he he did lean in. He he did lean into something that's totally different than what the Anglican Church would be. I know he came out of the Church of yeah, England, yeah, yeah. but yeah. he then the Methodist is very different. Right. Um, 
but the Lutherans and the Anglicans do have some, they still hold to the liturgical worship. Mm -hmm. They still have bishops. Mm -hmm. How do you see yourselves? The theology seems to be the main issue that would be different, I think, in some sense. Yeah. You guys, like you said, you have more of a middle way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that the, like the 39 articles lean more Calvin than they would Luther. Yeah. But h- how do you, see, is there any connection at all? Do you feel uh, sort of? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think uh, obviously, like you said, we're all products of the Reformation. Um, so there, there is a connection there. Um, and, you know, as far as the denominations, yeah, we do say that there's enough in common that uh, we, uh, we can participate well. So um, there's, there's several large Lutheran denominations in America, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not sure which one we have a, an active partnership with, but um, that being said, there is a relationship there. So they would recognize our ordinations, and, they, and we recognize theirs. So within that denomination, I could, if there's a, a Lutheran church of that denomination in the city, and they needed a priest or, or a pastor, and they asked me to come, then their, their leadership would recognize that. That's um, interesting, and yeah. so um, uh, and so, yeah. So there, there is a working relationship, uh, and I, I and I think that's the beauty of, you know, kind of doing what we're doing and what what your attempts in 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 discussing um, theology with other denominations. So like the Orthodox have had um, conversations with the Anglicans, and in Rome is starting to talk with the East again, and so I, I think that's helpful because you know you, you you definitely see in John 17 that you know Christ is praying to the Father, saying, God, let them be one as you and I are one. And so there is this sense that however we're going to come to it, we, we need to be united. And whatever the core is that we need to be united on, then that's what we need to be united on so that we can, we can be what he prayed for us to be. Uh, and so, so, yeah, I mean, theologically there are going to be some differences. Um, um, but at the end of the day, it's like if we can, if we can agree on the, on the essentials, then we can actually work towards what he prayed for. That was going to be my last question. It's in my other notebook. Do you believe in, and when I say Catholic, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about the Roman church. I'm talking about Catholicity. Little c. Yes. Yeah, the, the notion of a universal church existing. Um, do you believe that, that would be, uh, can be accomplished in any sense, considering the theological differences? No, th- this this far this far removed from um, from Christ and His establishing His church, I, I don't I don't think that can be uh, accomplished at least in in worship. I mean, I think it could probably be if you if you finagle things enough, it could probably be recognized on paper. But I don't I don't think it will be fully recognized until Christ returns. Um, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't think it'll it'll ever get there. I mean, we can strive for it. I think that's one of our goals besides evangelism uh, is to try to be united. Um, but there's just... It's no, because I know there's been a lot of ecumenical efforts made mm-hmm. by various groups and uh, to uh, varying degrees of success. I, th- there, there's some aspect, like if you talk about communion, mm-hmm. I would feel comfortable taking communion in many, many um, congregations, but I would take issue with it taking mass right I, I don't I couldn't really do that right just Hoc corpus yeah I couldn't do all yeah. of these things yeah. uh the idea of re-sacrificing Christ yeah, from that's my where si- hocus pocus came from right uh, is it yeah hocus well because up until I mean even up until the, the 1970s most Catholic masses were in Latin 
Yeah. And so, so well, there's you still know, people still want it to be that some right, traditions. Right. Yeah. So, so people who have no idea what's going on in, 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 in a Latin service when they don't speak anywhere remotely close to Latin, you know, they see the, the priest holding up these elements and goes, hoc est corpus and rings the bell and all of a sudden and they don't get and, and the people in the congregation don't get to partake nah, it's only the priests who get yeah. to take so they're like well something fishy's going off on there so <laughs> H- hocus corpus evolved into hocus, hocus pocus po- i didn't yeah. i didn't even know that uh, that's <laughs> it is something like that though there is yeah. some yeah. aspect at whatever they're doing i don't know right um so that that's so it, it would be very difficult to create an ecumenical situation between right. people of the Reformation, whatever denominations that would be, and Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how that could ever happen. I could see that happening with the East, right. but I don't know how that could happen in Rome. And so, Well, yeah, but up until Vatican II, and even a lot of Catholic uh, parishes post-Vatican II wouldn't even let you participate anyway, if they knew that you were not oh, yeah, in yeah. the Catholic Church. <laughs> That's I mean, true. So you could go forward, but they're like... Well, I know a lot of people were against Catholic too, the, the uh, Vatican II at the time right. as well. The oh, traditionalists yeah. wow. were, that, oh, yeah. that caused a huge stir at the time. It did. Um, it did. Yeah, but then the, the other thing, and I, I did a whole thing on the end times, just you, the Anglican view of the eschatology that you have, because you mentioned the return of Christ, mm-hmm. so that just triggered in my mind there. Um, there's, you know, all sorts of different, Views on that, right. premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. What is the Anglican, the general Anglican view of that? Yeah, so um, we would say that you know we we are technically living in the end times now, and um, what will happen next is Christ will return, and the Father, the Father will come with him. He's going to correct all things, take uh, make all the bad things come untrue, is how Sally Lloyd Jones put it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, which I've got a funny story about that too. Um, later but um yeah so um so now we don't we don't uh, hold to to the idea that there's going to be a rapture a seven-year tribulation um you know and that's that just um really stems from you know we don't we don't take a um, dispensationalist view of eschatology uh, and so so we we believe that christ is going to return and when he shows up it's it's all going to be right again so how do you, how do you, is is the book of Revelation how is that viewed in the Anglican Church? So we would say that um, you know within the various genres that you see uh, within the books of the Bible that it's it's apocalyptic, uh, and so that um, while there are some some levels of prophecy there, um, it's not e- extensively about what's going to happen before Christ's return at, at some future time, that it's it's being unfolded from the time when John was writing it, even till Christ's return. Okay, so it's an ongoing. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. all right. Yeah. It's an interesting way to see it. I know there's some people that see it in a sort of anagogical, spiritual way. Mm-hmm. That, and some people see that as something that already occurred in 70 AD and, th- and things of that nature. Right. Yeah. I didn't know what the Anglican uh, perception of or perspective on um, how they view the book of Revelation. Yeah. But I think you know how Southern Baptists generally view uh, the book of Revelation, although within the Reformed Baptist movement now, there's a big post-millennial movement okay. happening. Um, there's all sorts of strange things happening with these Reformed Baptists that are, that are happening. But um, You have to sit down and talk with Mark. I just now was introduced to him a couple of weeks ago. So he's the one that's planting Grace Covenant here in town. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a big thing now in yeah. the um, in the SBC and in, 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 uh, the Baptist denomination in general. It's it's very interesting, and it's something that I don't quite understand, but 
they're they're doing their bit so there you go but we're about an hour almost an hour so that'll be it we don't want to bore people or drive people crazy <laughs> although i have enjoyed this i hope bill's enjoyed it oh, and i hope that after he is um uh for a priest gets his ordination we can uh, have another discussion uh about some other other issues than anchism or maybe in wider evangelical sense or christian yeah. sense or Western Christian sense or talk about monasticism more. That is something that I would enjoy. But if you did enjoy it, um, hit like or subscribe or support if you want anything you want to. You know, I thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. Uh, You know, there's there's there is a level of interest, um, some some skepticism, some like, okay, what's going on here? Um, So it's fun to talk about. I think, uh, you know, I think it's good for us to know our family history and, you know, it it helps us grow as, as believers both individually and corporately. So I'm, I'm, I love having the time to do it. Yeah, and I, I really love talking about theology and I want people to know as much as possible about theology so that they know why they're in the traditions they're in. Yep. If you're a Baptist, you should know why you're not an Anglican or why you're not Methodist and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I've enjoyed this. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank and you. we will talk to you next time. Good night.